As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This week, we are taking a huge leap back in our historical timeline from 1830s America to the mystical land of ancient Greece. I know it sounds a bit weird since my lineage doesn't go back to Greece, at least that I know of, and this wasn't something I'd planned to discuss this season. But let's be honest, I'm not actually in charge of how the story is playing out. This is my ancestors' story, and I'm simply following their lead and letting it unfold as they intend. So, off to ancient Greece we will go. Now, if you've just discovered the podcast and you haven't listened to the first three episodes in this season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, or you'll be missing part of the story. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. And while yes, this is my personal family story, I have no doubt that you will find threads that feel similar to your own story, no matter where in the world they originated or what religion they were affiliated with. I hope to go down, in, and through, rather than around what is difficult in our collective inherited past and bring those stories to light in a way that just might change not only the past, but also the future. And I hope it just might inspire you to go on a journey of your own ancestral healing. If you do feel inspired to go deeper and you want to support the work it takes to bring this podcast to life, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role within the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And now let's begin this week with a poem. Praise be a warm and beating heart holding the entirety of the cosmos, vast as the solar system and as difficult to know, every hidden nook and cranny. But it is held within form the formless formed into a solid and beating heart, the heart like a hearth, stoking the fire within. Where does this all come from but everything, and yet still in the center, the zero point where all life and energy burst forth, the animating force of my entire life? How could it be so small and also so much? How could all of space and time fit inside me so elegantly and without my understanding. 
It folds and bends into the perfect shape, the wisdom available to me any time I wish to seek it out. How deep am I willing to go? Am I afraid of what I might find there? Hail the heart, knower of all, holder of all, keeper of all. The secrets are right there, inside of me. I can travel outside of me or within me, deeper and deeper in search of the mystery, releasing its secrets one layer at a time. I wrote that during a writing workshop this summer with author Sylvia Lindstedt, as inspired by her prompt to write a poem in praise of the homeland within us, in honor of our own inner terrain. I'm not much of a poet, but was in awe of what channeled through, that the entire cosmos is held within our heart, the formless in form. The heart is like a hearth stoking the fires within. We've spent the past three weeks talking about the more recent lineage of my family, the ones whose names I know, the familiar faces from my lifetime, and the ones I never met, but who can stare back at me through black and white images. But to know how we got to them, and ultimately to me, we have to go back much further. To the names and faces that have been lost to the ages. But whose lives were nonetheless important in creating each who has gone before me. I wasn't quite sure how far back we'd have to go, but the ancestors pointed me in the direction of Old Europe. Now, Old Europe refers to the Neolithic and Copper Age civilization that was active around 5000 to 3500 BC. Before major cities were built in Mesopotamia and Egypt, this area of Europe was known as one of the most sophisticated and technologically advanced areas of the world. Metal artisans were working with large amounts of copper and gold. Beautiful pottery and sculptures were being created. And in nearly every archaeological dig from this time, female goddess figurines were always found around hearths. And this seemed to be indicative of the religious practices of the time. The gods or goddesses may have differed from one culture to the next, but for thousands of years across Europe, the people worshipped a variety of deities. And many of them took the form of the feminine. Although this particular family line I'm following does not, to my knowledge, go back to ancient Greece, my ancestors wanted to take me there for the episode, to see and feel and understand some of the early goddess worship that was likely present somewhere in my own lineage, even if the goddesses had different names. When I journeyed to meet one of my ancient ancestors who wanted to share the story with me, I found an old woman in a small cabin beside her hearth. She looked like me, just a little bit older than I am today, perhaps, and just a little bit softer in the middle, perhaps, but short with dark hair and rosy red cheeks on a round face. I found her in her small wooden house on the edge of a village, cooking in a large cast iron cauldron over an open hearth. Containers of herbs lined the windowsill. The smell of root vegetables and a roast filled the air. Outside her milk cow was munching on fresh grass, and she wanted to feed me. No, actually, she wanted to nourish me, fill my belly, and warm my bones with a meal that was far more than the sum of its parts. She knew just by looking at me what I needed, what had been depleted by the modern life I lived on in an earth that she could barely recognize. 
She pulled the jars down one by one, sprinkling the dried herbs into the stew pot one after the other. These were the plants she knew by heart, the ones she'd spent her entire life with and had collected herself. She knew how they would nourish me, not just individually, but together. She knew because she knows my body. I am her, or rather, I come from her. After we finish our meal, she takes me by the hand and leads me outside. We walk along the well-trodden path that leads from the village out to the woods. Taller and taller the trees get, inviting us into their sanctuary until we reach our destination. A small stone hut, roughly built yet perfect in its dimensions. We duck through the small arched door and find a crackling fire in the middle of a dirt floor. The old woman bows to the flame and to the other women inside the hut and motions for me to do the same. We take our seats in the circle, and as I look at the faces illuminated by the flickering light of the fire, I see that they are timeless. They do not belong to this time, certainly. They are ancient and wise. They are the keepers of the light in our lineage. They motion to me to open the small leather pouch tied to the belt around my waist, and as I do, the woman seated across from me stood up from her seat, picked up a pair of iron tongs, and collected some embers from the fire to drop in my pouch. This is for your time, they told me, to remember who we are and how you got here. You can stoke the ancestral fire in your own life, warm yourself when you're cold, nourish yourself when you're hungry, light the darkness when you cannot see, and know that we are there with you, guiding you. I closed the pouch, thanked the women, my ancestors, and headed back to my own place and time, remembering that they're with me each time I light the fire of my own hearth. And it is through this action, the passing of the flame from their time to mine, that we're honoring the earliest of the Greek goddesses, Hestia. Although Hestia was never depicted in human form, only as the primordial flame, she was one of the twelve Olympian deities. Hestia was the Greek virgin goddess of the hearth, home, and hospitality. In Greek mythology, she's the eldest daughter of Cronus and Rhea. In her role as a protector of the family and community, sacrifices and offerings were regularly made to Hestia at the hearth, within each private home, and also at the town or city's public hearth. Each and every hearth is considered the sanctuary of the goddess. All of the goddess figurines found around hearths in Old Europe archaeological digs, those were honoring the goddess Hestia. Why is this so important? Why did my ancestors want me to learn about this goddess of the hearth and home? Because in those early days, before women's work was seen as somehow inferior to the work that men did out in the world for money, women's work was sacred. We did our daily chores around that sacred hearth an honor and offering to the goddess in our own personal temple. People in old Europe didn't have to go to church to honor their gods. They only needed to go to their hearth. And around their hearth, women found the sacred spark of creation. In the temple that was their home, women tended the fire, created nourishing meals for their family, spun wool or did their weaving, Acts of creation were a worship within the home, 
including the creation and nurturing of life of the next generation. Women's work is the heart of the home, and it was honored as such within the community. And I think what my ancestors were trying to show me is how this was stripped away from us as we shifted into a patrilineal society. That the honored role of women as partners in a household was reduced bit by bit until neither men nor women remembered the importance of it. Women are a powerful creative force. And to reclaim that in our current timeline requires us to not just create a society where women are equal, but to actually recenter our society around the restored feminine powers as they once were. Imagine that. But Hestia isn't the only Greek goddess my ancestors wanted me to meet. They also pointed me to one more form of goddess worship. This worship was in its height in the ancient city of Eleusis home of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which has been in my general awareness before now, but not specifically in relation to this story that I'm sharing with you this season. Until last week, when I was shown in a dream a picture of me sitting at my computer and writing out this episode. And then the phrase Eleusinian Mysteries was whispered in my ear. Honestly, it wasn't a super compelling vision. I probably wouldn't have remembered it after waking up which I'm guessing my ancestors knew, so they repeated it in my ear about a thousand times until I woke up. I immediately went to my laptop and looked up the mysteries, which have now added a whole other layer of understanding to where the story began and where it's going. So let's follow my ancestors' lead and look to the ancient city of Eleusis. Situated on a fertile plain, about 14 miles west of Athens, it was an independent city until it was annexed by Athens in the 7th century BC and became famous for hosting major Athenian religious festivals called the Eleusinian Mysteries. But let me have Terence McKenna explain the details of these mysteries, mostly because I so enjoy hearing him explain pretty much anything. In case you're not already acquainted with Terence, he was an ethnobotanist and mystic who wrote and lectured extensively about the responsible use of plant medicines and psychedelics. He passed away in the year 2000, but many of his presentations have since been shared online. So here he is talking about the Eleusinian Mysteries. Uh, It was this plain, a very fertile plain outside of ancient Athens, and uh, they celebrated the greatest of the Greek mysteries there. They celebrated, uh, it was a a biennial, or I mean a twice yearly festival. In the spring, they would celebrate uh, uh, the lesser mystery. And this seemed to be a fairly local uh, get-together of some sort, and probably a planting festival. But every September... For 2,000 years, people from all over the Greco-Roman world would come for the festival at Eleusis. And the rule was, first of all, it was open to everyone. Men, women, free man, slave, everyone could attend. The rule was, you could only attend once in your life. And so you had one shot whatever this thing was, and you were sworn to silence. And literally, everyone who was anyone 
went to Eleusis to experience the mysteries. I mean, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, Aeschylus, Euripides, um, everybody. Uh, who, people would make journeys of thousands of miles. It was the wellspring of Greek spirituality. The problem is we can't, we don't know with certainty what the excitement was all about. So what was the excitement all about? Well, the story behind the festivals comes from Greek mythology and the abduction of Persephone. In this myth, Persephone is kidnapped by her uncle Hades, god of the underworld and the realm of the dead, who wants her for his wife. Persephone's mother, Demeter, goddess of the earth and the one responsible for plants bearing fruit and animals bearing offspring, had no idea where she'd gone. She was so distraught at the disappearance of her daughter that she began to neglect her duties for the earth, letting the plants and flowers fade and wither, leading to an endless season of winter. Now, during this time, Demeter leaves the realm of the gods and travels to the ends of the earth searching for Persephone, disguising herself as an old woman. One day, she sits down on a rock outside Eleusis to weep. There, she's found by the daughters of the local king, Kelios who took pity on her and made her feel welcome, the first instance of human kindness and compassion she was shown on her travels. So she decided to stay in Eleusis and became a nurse to Demophon, the king's infant son. At some point, it became clear that Persephone was in the underworld with Hades. However, during her time there, she had eaten several pomegranate seeds, which legitimized her presence in the underworld. But her mother's sadness and the resulting disappearance of vegetation on the earth could not be allowed to continue. The king of the gods, Zeus himself, finally brokered a deal in which Persephone would spend half of the year with her husband in the underworld and half above with her mother. Cheered by her return, Demeter allowed the plants to grow again, thus beginning the annual cycle of the seasons, the winter marking Demeter's mourning when her daughter is absent. Grateful for the hospitality she was shown at Eleusis, she rewarded her hosts with two major gifts. The knowledge of agriculture, which was to be spread throughout the world by Triptomalus, another son of Kelios, and the mysteries, a specific and sacred knowledge to be experienced and passed on to others at Eleusis. So, what were the mysteries? Well, nobody knows for sure. That's what makes them so mysterious. But if you start piecing together the information that was shared, you can start getting a picture about what went on inside these secret initiation ceremonies. First of all, these festivals were held twice a year. The lesser mysteries were celebrated in spring, in which initiates would sacrifice a piglet to Demeter and Persephone, and then ritually purify themselves in the river. According to Thomas Taylor, the first Englishman to translate the works of Aristotle and Plato, the lesser mysteries occultly signified the miseries of the soul while in subjugation to the body, so those of the greater obscurely intimated by mystic and splendid visions the felicity of the soul both here and hereafter, when purified from the defilements of a material nature and constantly elevated to the realities of intellectual spiritual vision. Did you follow that? I had to read it a few times to break it down, but it seems that the lesser mysteries were more focused on showing the limitations that our soul experiences while in a human body, 
so that when the initiate experiences the greater mysteries and the accompanying visions during that ceremony, they can appreciate the happiness or bliss of the soul after death, while still alive. Or, as Brian Mirarescu, author of The Immortality Key, says, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. But we'll come back to that idea later. Now, the greater mysteries took place in the late summer or early fall, likely coinciding with harvest time, and were open to anyone who had completed the lesser mysteries. It was a week-long festival that began with bringing the sacred objects to the temple, ritual sacrifices, and the participants purifying themselves in the river. After these first few days of somber ceremony, the party really gets started with an all-night feast before the pilgrimage from Athens to Eleusis that began at the cemetery and continued along the Sacred Way, a 21-kilometer hike that concluded with an all-night vigil, perhaps in honor of Demeter's long search for Persephone. Finally, the initiates would enter the Telesterion, a giant hall that could hold as many as 3,000 people, and they'd only be admitted after reciting I have fasted, I have drunk the kaikion, I have taken from the kisti, and after working it, have put it back in the kalathis. So, of course, the big question is, what is this kaikion the initiates drank just before the ceremony where they would apparently have visionary experiences of what happens to them after death? Let's go back to Terence McKenna to give us his theories. Uh, some of you may know the... the um scholar Robert Graves discusses this in The White Goddess and his theory which I think deserves to be more more looked at than it has his theory was that um, these recipes people drank something from a special cup called a kekekion and uh, recipes supposedly exist for what they drank and it's honey, barley, something else, and always water. And, and uh, uh, Graves argued that you don't, that water is not something that you list as an ingredient of something you drink. Obviously, it has water in it. So he said, the inclusion of water in this list is in order that there can be an augum. Do you know what an augum is? I mean, you will when I tell you, because you've all seen them. An augum is when you make a list of things in such a way that the first letters spell out a word. You grok that. So the idea was that in Demotic Greek, the words for barley, honey, water, and this fourth ingredient that I can't remember, those four words can be arranged to spell out the word miko, which means mushroom. So Robert Graves was convinced that a psilocybin mushroom lay behind the Eleusinian mysteries. This is a pretty good, uh, this is uh, not entirely unreasonable. Now, a few years ago, there was a book called, written by uh, the great mushroom enthusiast and discoverer Gordon Wasson and the chemist who discovered LSD, Albert Hoffman, The Road to Eleusis. And they put forth there a new theory 
which was that uh, on the plain of Eleusis they grew uh, barley, and and uh, these people thought that there may have been a a special strain of claviceps. Do you all know what claviceps is? Do you all know what ergot is? Ergot is a smut. A smut is a disgusting disease, a fungal disease of grain. Have you ever been in a cornfield and seen an ear of corn that looks like it's covered with some black, slimy, horrible stuff that's flowing out of it and all over it? It's absolutely disgusting. Anyway, so corn smut, and there are rye smuts, and there are wheat smuts. But interestingly, the, the rye smut, which is ergot, is an, uh, an organism called Claviceps paspali, uh, produces LSD-like alkaloids. And uh, the problem is that um, LSD... Ergot-related alkaloids also uh, very tend to cause convulsions, or they can cause convulsions. If any of you suffer from migraine headaches, now there are a lot of different drugs for migraine. But up until just four or five years ago, the drug of choice for migraine was called ET, ergonomine tartrate. Ergonomine tartrate, if you've got a kilo of it, you can settle down and make several million hits of LSD. Ergonomine tartrate is this very rigidly controlled underground substance that is produced legally only in certain sanctioned fields in northern Pakistan. And it's produced for the world market of migraine sufferers. And you get these little tiny blue pills. I, I have migraines. I used to take ergot, but I don't... I've, gotten it under control. But anyway, uh, it's the drug of choice for migraine because it constricts uh, the vessel, the blood arteries going into the head. Anyway, uh, Wasson and Hoffman argued that what they were doing at Eleusis is that they were brewing an ergot beer. They were deliberately gathering barley that was infected with claviceps and they were... uh, brewing an intoxicating beer and people were having a hallucinogenic experience. Well, now this is a great area for uh, the able-bodied among us to do research because it should be possible to collect uh, claviceps and maybe even to go to Eleusis and collect claviceps there and culture it out and see if you could make an ergot beer that would actually get you hallucinogenically stoned. I'm not sure what's going on. I, uh, ergot is a dangerous substance. Uh, anyway, uh, it's important for the argument because um, I don't see how they could have been serving several thousand people ergotized beer every September for 2,000 years and not had the Eleusinian Mysteries get a certain reputation for risk, you know, that people would have convulsions and conceivably even die of heart attacks. I mean, how could they get that many people loaded year in and year out and not get a bad rap on it? 
And then I, t- I talked to Albert Hoffman about this, and he didn't seem to feel that it was such a problem. He said that what you could do is uh, float hot oil on the surface of this beer, and you could draw off the convulsive alkaloids would have an affinity for the hot oil, and then you could just skim this oil off and discard it, and you would leave the hallucinogenic material in the beer. So there you have it. It seems highly likely that the medium for this transformational and mysterious ceremony was some kind of specially brewed hallucinogenic. Now, Everything that happens after the initiate enters the temple is supposed to be a complete secret. And it more or less stayed that way for the 1300 years the mysteries were held. So although we don't know the exact details, there does seem to be three main pieces to the ceremony. First, a dramatic reenactment of the Demeter-Persephone myth. Then, sacred objects were displayed in a way that engaged the initiate in the experience. And finally, some kind of commentary was offered about the things that were shown. Whatever it was that happened in the temple, the initiates had to swear not to reveal them on punishment of death. That apparently was carried out at least once and probably helped to encourage people to keep their mouths shut. When it was all said and done, the party continued with an all-night feast along with a bull sacrifice and a ritual to honor the dead. Now, Does any of this sound vaguely familiar to you? Because to me, it sure sounds a whole heck of a lot similar to the Mormon temple ceremonies. And those sound a whole heck of a lot similar to Masonic temple ceremonies. The drinking of a special brew, followed by a dramatic retelling of an important story meant to engage the participant in the show while they're ostensibly high on some kind of plant medicine. The revealing of sacred objects or secret handshakes or a special name or whatever in order to gain access to heaven or to the afterlife. And they all include a blood oath. The promise to never, ever reveal the secret. But why not? What was revealed during these ceremonies that could only be discussed among fellow initiates? As I was doing research these past few months, I stumbled across a quote from Mormonism's founder, Joseph Smith, that I think illustrates the point perfectly. He said, The secret of masonry is to keep a secret. I mean, is that it? These rites and rituals have been created to simply see if you can keep a secret? Or maybe it's to make the initiated feel somehow more special or superior to others by knowing a special secret only revealed to those on the inside. You know, like the secret handshake to give to the angels who will unlock the gates of heaven for you. Or the secret that if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Which, by the way, why do all these secrets seem to be about what happens when we die? Maybe because that is the one great unknowable mystery. Or maybe this secret is really about the meaning of life so that we can fully live it before we die. Let's go back to Brian Mirarescu's theory about this. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. That's the key. I call it the immortality key. It's a big job. It's what we're all looking for, right? The meaning of life? What does it mean to be alive? What happens when we die? Is there a God? Is there a point to any of this? Well, according to the ancient philosophers and mystics, there are answers to these questions, like real answers. They're not hidden away in some book or some dark corner of the internet. They're not necessarily in your local church or temple 
And even if Moses, Jesus, and the Buddha himself were sitting in your living room, they couldn't tell you, because it's nothing you can actually learn. Nothing for your rational brain to compute, at least. You know, my hero, the late Joseph Campbell, once said, it's not the meaning of life that we're after. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive. So that uh, the life experiences that we have on the purely uh, physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being and reality. And uh, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. But you can't very well experience that rapture until you've experienced its opposite. You don't know what you got till it's gone, says Joni Mitchell. So until you've experienced death, not in some abstract or metaphorical way, but an actual death that feels acutely and terrifyingly real in this lifetime, how can you know what it means to be alive? And how can you even talk about an afterlife until you've seen it for yourself? These are the mysteries. Oh, okay. These are the mysteries, or at least another theory about the mysteries. But this also makes a lot of sense. If we can have the experience of death while still alive, to know that our soul just continues on, whether or not we're incarnated here on earth with a body, it may alleviate any fear we have about our death, which then in theory makes us really appreciate the time we do have here in our bodies. But the critical piece to these rituals seems to be the plant medicine that can actually shift your consciousness enough to dissolve your ego and give you that firsthand experience of life after death while you're still alive. You can watch all the historical reenactments you want or sit in church and listen to a thousand sermons and maybe, just maybe, you'll have a spontaneous transcendent moment. But if you were a priestess or a prophet or a grandmaster, and you wanted to lead a large group of people through a collective religious experience all at the same time, you'd need a little help from the plant or the fungi realm. Let's hear a bit more from Brian about these life-changing experiences. You went to Eleusis as a human being, and you walked away a god. How did that happen? Through the ceremonial experience of death and rebirth. Let's be very clear. Eleusis and the other mystery cults of the time were the real religion of the ancient Greeks, the people who built Western civilization, democracy, the arts and sciences, the theater that became our Hollywood, the Olympic Games that became our sports industry, the open marketplace of ideas that we take for granted every day on social media. Didn't you ever wonder how the people who invented all this and the very word for skepticism could somehow believe in a bunch of fairy tales? Did they really think Zeus was perched on some mountaintop, hurling thunderbolts down at us hapless humans? Or Poseidon was in the middle of the sea, patrolling the wind and waves with a freaking trident? Come on, man. Take Cicero, the great Roman statesman of the first century BC. He called Eleusis the most exceptional and divine thing Athens ever produced. Not democracy and free speech and all the rest of it. Eleusis was the thing we could never forget. It was said to hold the entire species together. Why? Because you went to its sacred temple to experience nothing less than death and rebirth. And only those who had made the long march from Athens to the torchlit sanctuary, drunk a magic potion, and witnessed the blessed sight and vision, as Plato called it, were said to conquer death. 
by experiencing just a taste of immortality, that rapture of being alive. And if you think about it, that's more science than religion. Once you've seen God, there's no unseeing God. You've proven the hypothesis for yourself. So the religion of the Greeks was to let literally every citizen, including women and slaves, nobles and peasants, have a direct experience with God. Because as Brian points out, once you see God, you can't unsee God. You've proven the hypothesis for yourself. In other words, they didn't need to have faith or be told to trust that their religious leader was telling them the truth. They got to experience it for themselves. And this festival went on spring and fall every year for 1,300 years. Think about that. 1,300 years ago was the year 722. If every single adult you knew your entire life experienced the Eleusinian mysteries, and every generation of your ancestors back to the year 722 had done the same, that would be 48 generations of unbroken belief and tradition. 48 generations of people who'd had a direct experience of God. Think about how different our world today might be if that was the case. And yet today, the mysteries barely flicker in our collective memory. How did such a long-standing tradition die? Well, pretty much the same way most civilizations were wiped out in those days, by being attacked by opposing armies. In Eleusis' case, it was Alaric, king of the Goths, who destroyed the city and its temples to Demeter and Persephone in 395 AD. Alaric was also the one who later sacked Rome, leading to the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. It was at the same time that the religion of Christianity was on the rise throughout the Roman Empire, and once the empire fell, the church took over many of the government's earlier roles. Romans, just like the Greeks, were accustomed to worshipping many gods, so it took some time and let's be honest, probably quite a bit of arm twisting to convince the people to convert to Christianity and worship only one god. The temples to Demeter and Persephone would have been considered worship of false idols and certainly wouldn't have been allowed to continue under the Christian church. Although these goddesses had their massive temples destroyed, what about Hestia? The primordial flame, the hearth. Certainly those traditions continued in the privacy of one's own home for many generations, and was one of the reasons these heathen traditions were so difficult for the Christian church to stamp out. The home was the temple. Women continued to carry the flame of the old traditions. And even without the pomp and circumstance of a major festival, women could always light a candle, say a silent prayer, and continue their sacred work beside the fire. This practice was likely co-opted by the church as well. The virgin goddesses became the Virgin Mary somewhere along the line. And the custom of lighting a candle and saying a prayer at a church altar is continuing the same tradition that people have been doing for thousands of years. And it's through this practice that we can each connect with our ancestors and remember that they live on in our hearts, helping to stoke the fire within. They will warm us when we're cold, nourish us when we're hungry, and light the darkness when we cannot see. And for that, I am grateful. So thanks for listening this week. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday.
thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.